Welcome to Pure Conversation. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. Pure Conversation is co-hosted by me, Joseph Miller. And me, Darren May. Check out our website, pureconversation.com, for more content and behind-the-scenes looks. Make sure to subscribe. Rate us wherever you listen to podcast five stars, or don't rate us at all. Really appreciate the listen. Disclaimer, Pure Conversation is an opinion-based podcast. We're not financial consultants and any financial advice should be purely for entertainment purposes. Uh, so, so this week we are joined by, by David Sampson on the podcast. Rabbi David Sampson is a personal rabbi of mine and he's been a teacher and pulpit rabbi. He's the founder of the Arut Sheva English Division. He is the current dean of YTA in Israel. He has been deemed the educational entrepreneur, starting many schools internationally. Most recently, he has started the Lone Star Academy, a group of language schools, and the King Solomon Academy. Thank you for, very much for joining us, Rabbi Samson. How are you doing? I'm glad after that introduction, there's still time for me to respond. Or <laughs> Hashem, I'm okay. Yeah, thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about your background, about your background in education, you know, how you became the uh, educational entrepreneur. Oh. Well, um, you know, I was at a, uh, a conference for uh, principals and supervisors, uh, superintendents of schools, and I was asked the question, what part of my education did I find the most impacting and necessary for what it is that I do today? And then I started thinking back about all of the uh, different classes and schools that I attended. And I came to the conclusion that when I was in kindergarten, I would always take a round peg and try to fit it inside of a square hole. And it, it like, it sort of would go and it wouldn't go, but I would just, you know, keep getting at it and it like would almost go. And then you could sort of put it there. And like, that was like what I enjoyed the most. And, um, to see if I could get the square. The square wouldn't fit in the circle though, but I could get the triangle into the square. And if I have to uh, identify what it is that I'm doing today, uh, I'm, I'm actually fitting in uh, round pegs into square holes. And when you're an entrepreneur, you just have to change the status quo and do something that wasn't done up to now. And I think that ever since I was a little kid, I was kind of an entrepreneur doing things that, that were not done. You know, when I got a little older and I was after the pegs, then I would have toys. And the first thing that I would do when I had toys was um, take the motor out. And then I would see if the motor could run anything else. And then uh, I would like have just a whole bunch of dismantled toys. And then I would just love using the motors to make all kinds of other things turn around and spin and see if I could get them. And then like when I got older, then I started uh, with um, supermarket carts and seeing if I could get them uh, to, to go uphill as well as downhill. And then like when I got older, I uh, actually uh, started uh, trying to see if I could like make businesses out of like nothing. And uh, like when I was in school, uh, in my days, there was a punishment. You have to write 25 times, I must not talk in class. 
and that was like the going punishment. And uh, I would simply uh, spend most of the classes writing up, I must not talk in class, and then sell, sell, sell them for 10 cents a page to all of the people that needed them. Uh, once actually a teacher gave me 25 times and I just walked up and gave it to him on the spot. He got really angry and he said a hundred times. And then like I gave him four pages and he said <laughs> hundred times. And I had 500, but I saw where it was going. And I said, all right, I'll just give it to him tomorrow. And, uh, you know, 10 cents a page, that's like a hit at 50 cents, losing uh, 40 cents, losing all of those uh, pages. So anyway, and then like when I got older, I decided that I would do other things. Uh, and um, I came to Israel and uh, started learning. And I was always uh, looking for for things that uh, were not taken care of. And I'll, I, I'll tell you a story uh, that's not, not with me. I wish it was with me. But the fact that I remember the story, I guess, has some kind of meaning that it impacted me. Um, this is a story about, uh, I don't know if I should say your name, because her father is like a famous rabbi. And then she might be embarrassed when this thing becomes viral. So I'm not going to say your name. but. Um, she was a girl and uh, she went to kindergarten and uh, they told the parents in kindergarten that they were very worried about the girl because all of her pictures are using only black. She doesn't use any of the other colors and she's using only black. And the girl was like a fine, well-adjusted girl, no issues at home. I was like very surprising. So the parents talked to the girl and uh, they said, how come all of your pictures are with black. And uh, the girl answered, well, all of my pictures are with black because uh, I see that all of the other kids in the kindergarten are using all of the other colors and the black is just left alone in the box. And I felt bad for the black. So I decided that I'll, I'll take the black. Uh, you know, I think that's like a really politically correct uh, story to tell in these times. And uh, anyway, uh, I also saw the same kind of thing, that there are always kids that fall between the cracks. And they're kids that just nobody nobody deals with. And the, the way things are, if there isn't somebody who's going to pick up the black crayon, it's just going to stay in the box until uh, rigor mortis sets in. And uh, you need someone to redeem these uh, black crayons. And that's kind of what was behind my idea of uh, making different kinds of schools that didn't exist. Going back to this whole idea of entrepreneurialism, why schools uh, specifically? Why did you get into that? Okay, well, uh, I'll tell you. First of all, it, it's a very uh, logical development because what happened was I came to Israel and I started uh, studying in yeshiva. Originally, I thought I would uh, only stay in yeshiva for one year uh, just to get away from my high school in America and it would be an excuse to have a senior year in Israel instead of a senior year in Baltimore. Uh, but then I actually got involved in serious study and one year led to another and another until I spent 13 years in yeshiva. And then like your plans of becoming a marine ecologist or biologist um, when you're already like 30 years old look different. You say, all right, now I've finished uh, that one year in the gap year now I'm 30, what, what should I do now? And then um, people start asking you and they say, well, maybe you'd like to teach. 
and it's just right there. And you have like a job and someone's offering you a salary, you're married and the kids, they don't care. They just keep eating three meals a day, whether or not you work or not. And you figure, oh, well, instead of just becoming a marine ecologist now and spending the next five years uh, destitute, maybe it's better to uh, become a teacher. And then you become a teacher and then you figure out what becoming a teacher is. And then after a couple of years of becoming a teacher, you figure out, oh, well, you know, if uh, we did this and this in the system, it would probably be better. And then you become uh, 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 a person in charge of, of other teachers. And then eventually you become a principal. And then eventually you become uh, a person who just starts the whole system from scratch because uh, it's not salvageable. That's it's, pretty much what happens. But what, what you're saying is, is very interesting because it, it seems to be that entrepreneurialism is a mindset is sort of a personality and it doesn't matter what the environment if a person has the proclivity they're going to do it wherever they are um well if your uh emphasis is on uh entrepreneurialism definitely and i i want to maybe take it to another place uh which is also unexpected but at least it's relevant and um it has to do with like growing up in the 60s in, in America. And that when you grow up in the 60s in America, you're an anarchist and the, the, the police are pigs, not, not very different from what they are. I don't know what name they're called today, but uh, we didn't think of defunding them. We, we were just happy if they didn't shoot us. And uh, the, the police were like the enemy. The establishment was uh, evil. Anybody over 30 was just so brain dead that we had nothing to do. And the idea of fighting for peace, there is some kind of uh, illogical rationale behind that, fighting for peace. And they kept explaining that we have to die in Vietnam so that we can fight for peace. And we just didn't understand that. And we said, well, why don't we have like love for peace and peace for peace instead of fighting for peace. And we didn't really want to go and die in Vietnam. And it was really hard to explain to us the importance of uh, dying in the Mekong jungle. And um, it wasn't something to talk to us. Anyway, I grew up as, as a kind of anarchist, like anybody, anybody who like was in tune with what was happening in America in the 60s was part of this like Woodstock culture of one, two, three, what are we fighting for? And like, we just wanted to bring a revolution. and uh, that, that was it. So you, like, you grow up in this revolutionary culture idea and um, it kind of stayed with me. And that even though like, I probably don't look like the common 70-year-old uh, biker that you might find who is a survivor of Woodstock, uh, I, I actually am very much uh, a revolutionary anarchist who uh, is antagonistic to the status quo and the, to the establishment. And in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to, you can't be friends with the status quo. And that you really have to say the status quo has to go. And then you can move to the next stage. And the next, that's like, that's like, first of all, that's like the mindset, the underlying mindset of an entrepreneur is that he cannot agree that the status quo will remain. Now, that in itself is not a usual thing. I don't know the percentage of entrepreneurs, but like, I would guess uh, 999 people out of 1,000 
like the status quo. It gives them a sense of security and uh, it makes them comfortable. The fact that they know that they're going to do tomorrow what they did yesterday. But you have like these people that it makes them insecure and they say, oh, the status quo, that's like our greatest enemy. And that if we want the world to go forward, we're going to have to change the status quo and see that tomorrow will arrive today. And then you're going to have to do and change things. And that's also one of the reasons why there's always a lot of um, difficulty getting a startup put together. Because especially uh, if it's a startup in, in a field that exists, if you're starting something that doesn't exist, then that's fine. But if, if something already exists and you want to improve it, for instance, education in a school system, as soon as you're going to make a new school, everybody who has a school and who has the status quo is going to come out against you and said, oh, well, you're changing the status quo. Uh, the status quo is us. We are the status quo. We like the status quo. We want to keep the status quo. The status quo does not include you. You are not part of the status quo. Goodbye. And then they're going to do everything that they can to mitigate against your success and to see that uh, you don't do it. So it's definitely, aside from just wanting a change, you have to have a certain amount of thick skin and fortitude to actually uh, know that everybody, everybody is going to say that uh, it's a stupid idea. Don't do it. Don't change things. And you just have to really go against the grain. Maybe I'll add like an interesting antidote with that. Uh, every time I make a school, everybody tells me it's a stupid, stupid idea. Do not make the school. Uh, this is really ridiculous. It's not going to work. It's a bad idea. It's going to uh, impact negatively everyone else. Now also, the King Solomon Academy that I just made, uh, I, I asked the OU, and they said, oh, it's a very bad idea. It's going to impact negatively registration in the Hebrew day schools, and um, you should not do it. And I didn't expect a different answer. I don't see them as uh, the world leaders in entrepreneurship and uh, leading the, the world into to new things. But um, the basic idea is uh, oh, the basic idea is that uh, people are going to come out against you. Uh, one of the things that, that happened is that I once actually did do something which was stupid, and it was a stupid idea to make the school. But there was no way of knowing, and everybody then told me, well, we told you so, we told you it was a stupid idea. How come you did this? How come you made the school? And I said, well, every time I make a school, you tell me it's a stupid idea. And there's really no way of knowing ahead of time which stupid idea is really a stupid idea and which isn't. And that is true. You were right this time. Uh, which brings me to another trait for entrepreneurs. And that is that a lot of people are afraid of failing. They don't want to fail. And that if you don't want to fail, then it's not for you. You should kind of stick with the status quo. Stay easy. You won't fail. You won't succeed but at least you won't fail. And you'll just kind of uh, hang in there with the flow. And uh, you have to be ready to take a fall and, and to lose money. And uh, I went around the world and I talked to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs around the world and there was a common denominator. The common denominator was that they all went bankrupt or they lost money or they just flopped and, and just didn't do anything. And um, 
I'll tell you an anecdote that uh, after uh, one of my schools that I made, it didn't flop, but it was just so far from what I wanted to do that I was disillusioned. So I went to one of my uh, funders, a person that, that helps me uh, with money, and uh, he has like a giant multi-million uh, uh, dollar business. And um, I asked him, I said, well, well, maybe you can encourage me. And he said, yeah, listen, I just came back from Italy and uh, I spent $30,000 on a show in Italy and it was worth nothing. And it was just totally nothing. And then um, my staff uh, all, you know, said, well, we told you it was worth this. We told you it was a bad idea. How come we just did this? And then I went back and I told my staff, how come you didn't tell me this uh, when we went to Las Vegas? And we went to Las Vegas, we did the same thing, and there it worked out and it panned out. And that what you have to do is you have to simply try and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, I saw that it didn't phase him in the least, the fact that he spent $30,000 trying to make a show in Italy and it just didn't work. And he said, well, that, that's what you do. You try and he said, you know what? If I wouldn't have tried and I wouldn't have gone to Italy to try to do this show, then I would have really felt bad that I'm a wimp and that I don't know how to do business. But the fact that I went and I did it, then I feel good about myself. So it's the same thing with schools that uh, you have to be willing to, to dare, you have to be willing to fail, and uh, you have to be willing to work hard to change the status quo from something that doesn't exist to something that does. Can you speak a little bit towards the fact, you, you mentioned uh, you know, you mentioned a lot, but one, one of the points, that, that the two points you stressed on was one that in terms of uh, you know, being an educator and, and you're seeing, you know, the black crayon, seeing kids, I guess, fall through their cracks and being someone who questions the status quo. Um, you know, how did that, how, how, how do you see the, the cracks of the, you know, the current education system and what are you trying to fix when you do that? Well, it's not really hard uh, to see cracks uh, when you see kids that uh, are not in school then it's not hard to deduce that um, there's some uh, something wrong with the system and that there's a, a lack of compatibility between the school system and the kids. And uh, it's not something that you need a microscope to deduce or understand. Uh, there are different kinds and different levels of, uh, in Israel they're called noshrim, dropouts. Uh, the simple one is someone who's simply a dropout and he's just out of it, he tuned out and uh, he's on the streets, he's doing something else. There's another kind of dropout that is not on the street. He's in school, but even though he's in school, he's dropped out. Uh, I went to the supervisor uh, of uh, schools in Tel Aviv, and I said that I wanted to make a school there to help the dropouts. And she told me, oh, well, in Tel Aviv, we don't have any dropouts. Everyone is uh, happy. And um, sometimes the school systems can uh, live in some kind of an illusion that everyone is fine because these kids that are either on the streets or maybe vegetating in school are uh, actually listed on her list. And she says, well, look, this is the list of 18-year-olds uh, and this is the list of kids in the school. They're identical. Nobody's missing. It's fine. And she just was never on the street and has no idea that there really are human being dropouts on the streets. Uh, Another, another kind of dropout is a dropout that is a really tricky dropout because they are in school and they're engaged 
in studying. And this is something that I've seen in yeshiva high schools and in Ulpanot, that they have kids that are actually registered in the school, 100% attendance, and they're straight A students. They're getting good grades. You say, well, that's not a dropout. Why is he a dropout? They're dropouts because educationally, they will receive nothing from the school. They don't agree in any, in any way to accept anything from the school. And that um, religiously, educationally, they have like a completely different uh, set of values. Their values are usually predicated on the pop culture of Western civilization. And whatever their rabbi is telling them is just meaningless. And they know how to say the words, oh, of course, rabbi. And that they even attend uh, services. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. I went to see the best schools in the world. One of the best schools in the world is considered Westminster Abbey in London. And uh, it's a school that's affiliated with the church and they have to pray twice a week in the chapel. And I spoke to the uh, 11th and 12th graders in Westminster Abbey and I asked them, uh, are you religious? Do you believe in God? And they say, no, we are not religious in any way. We do not believe in God. And I asked them, well, how, how do you feel about being forced to go to chapel twice, uh, twice a week? And they said, oh, we love it. It's, it's great. We go to chapel and we sing and we uh, like the hymns. It's nice music. It's great. We love it. It's much better than a regular frontal class. So here you have kids that as far as Westminster Abbey is concerned, these are people that are really getting a serious religious education twice a day, twice a week. They have to attend chapel. They sing all the hymns. They probably know them by heart. But there is zero education going on religiously and that these people are not going to be the priests and cardinals of the next generation. These people don't believe in God. And after being four years in Westminster Abbey, they don't believe in God any more than they did, maybe less than they did when they first came. The same thing happens, Lahavdil, in uh, religious institutions in the Orthodox world. And you have kids that um, are simply uh, attending. Some of them will even daven. And they'll do whatever the rabbis want them to do, and they'll say whatever they're supposed to say. But they're in a, such a different place, they're not getting educated. Those kids are really tricky to identify and very tricky to uh, educate. And they are also no less of a dropout than the kids that are just on the street and are willing to tell you, yeah, rabbi, you want me to be honest? I don't really go for all of this. And uh, a person like that, you can immediately talk to. You don't have to get through all kinds of husks in order to just get the guy to, to speak. A person who's in school is much more difficult to identify and to actually communicate with in a very serious, uh, educative fashion. Um, you, you hit on a very interesting point earlier about how um, it's sometimes harder to bring innovation in a industry that already exists as opposed to an industry that you're creating from scratch. Um, I know Thomas Sowell just came out uh, with a new book in America called Charter Schools and Their Enemies, um, where he talks about how, like in New York, you can have a charter school that's literally within the same public school, and the charter school, almost every kid, and these are in very impoverished neighborhoods um, in New York City, almost every kid is 
in the charter school and they're from the same families the charter school kid is just excelling almost everyone is superior and in the school in the the exact same building which is the public school almost every kid is failing um it just seems like in education there's so much inertia in a certain direction it's such an established vertical like how do you how do you go against that how do you go against the float you know it's so much against you so I, I want to tell you something that uh, I learned from a very good friend of mine. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say his name. His name is uh, uh, David Le, and he uh, he's the one who's in uh, uh, who's like renovating Ir, uh, Ir David, the city of David, which is near the Western Wall of the Hotel. And uh, I asked him what he does when he reaches uh, an impasse, like how he goes about navigating difficult situations. Sometimes, sometimes you have challenges that are like just insurpassable. They're just, they're just what do you do? I mean, uh, you know, I didn't really talk a lot about the King Solomon uh, Academy, but uh, it sounds like, oh, great, we have an academy. I mean, just to, to tell you a secret, we're now uh, two weeks before the beginning of the school year. And uh, I have a school, I have a faculty, I have a curriculum, I have everything really. The only thing I'm missing is students. I have zero registration uh, two weeks before the beginning of the school year, which seems like an insurmountable uh, uh, challenge, but uh, I'm actually very optimistic that two weeks from now, uh, it'll be very different. And you say, well, what, what do you do? What do you do when you have these like ridiculous challenges that everyone is against you and there's just no way you can't get a license what do you do so he told me that what he does is he uh sits alone with himself and he finds that place in his heart where he realizes the idealistic importance of what it is that he's doing and that is what is actually his battery and giving him power in order to go forward. And what he does when he sees obstacles that are just insurmountable is he goes back into himself and he brings strength from that, that inner part of himself, which is the part, his motor, the, the part that is telling him to do it to begin with. And then after uh, re visiting his original vision and his original his original passion he goes out charges again and uh attacks the obstacle and then suddenly the obstacle is no longer this uh formidable insurpassable it's like a little cute little thing that you just kind of jump and hop over because you have such a in increased passion fortitude and vision that <laughs> nothing is going to stand in your way and that uh, no matter what you're doing and what kind of entrepreneur you are, that's the method to, to, to that's the method that you have to uh, uh, draw power from yourself. And the more power that you're able to draw from your sense of self, the more you're able to uh, negotiate greater and greater obstacles. Tell us a little bit more about the uh, King Solomon Academy, you know, what, who it's for, what the purpose is. Uh, 
the King Solomon Academy also is born in wake of the COVID virus. And uh, all of the school system has just changed. Uh, I was just today at uh, a brick and mortar school in Israel, uh, Nativ Meir of B'nai Akiva, YTA, uh, another school that uh, I established. And uh, we still don't know. Officially, the Ministry of Education said that on the 1st of September, we're opening uh, for a full week for 18 students in a class. Uh, I don't believe that's going to happen. And I think that we'll have some variation of what happened up to now, and classes will be on Zoom. Uh, as a result, I think that the entire education, uh, institutes of education, are going to go through a paradigm change. Uh, I'm trying to just read what's happening, and I created it primarily for three different types of students. Uh, the first are people whose parents simply do not have jobs anymore, and they can't afford Jewish education. Jewish education takes such a giant part of the family uh, cake that if one of the members of the family has lost their job, even if the husband still has his big job and the wife loses her little job or vice versa, it just doesn't work and they won't be able to send the kids. And uh, today there is uh, a noticed reduction in registration in the Hebrew day schools across the United States from families that simply uh, cannot pay tuition. And are not interested in receiving scholarships, even though all of the foundations across the United States have really stepped in to help. They're not interested in receiving help and they just want to remain self-sufficient and they're going to send their kids to public school. The reason why is because even their regular school is just Zoom. And they figure, well, if it's Zoom, it's not going to be a mixed community. They're just going to be on, uh, on the screen. So it really doesn't matter uh, where they are, like who the teacher is, if they see a real flesh and blood teacher, or they just see a virtual teacher on the screen. And uh, saving twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, I can you know, hire the best rabbi for that amount. And uh, many, many people are, are leaving. So uh, I, first of all, I want to cater to that group that are in public school and they want, uh, they want a Jewish education. The second group that I wanted to help are people that live in a community that has an elementary school and doesn't have a junior high in a high school. And uh, we identified uh, 61 communities, uh, many of them on the East Coast, that have this situation, that they have uh, a junior high and they don't have a, uh, they don't have, a, I'm sorry, they have an elementary, they don't have a junior high. And kids that live in this community simply don't have an option of going to a brick and mortar institution in their neighborhood, in their city. And um, this way offering an online after school program, we can uh, cater to these students as well. Uh, another group of students that um, simply are interested, uh, according to uh, a Pew survey that was done at the beginning of the COVID virus, they found that there is a heightened interest in religiosity uh, amongst the United States uh, 
people. And that uh, with Protestants and Catholics, it goes up to like 50% more interest. And with, about the Jewish community? and with Jewish people, it also went up, but not 50%, it went up 7%. But it's interesting, I don't know exactly uh, why. Chazal say that Hagoyim Shuvahim, that um, uh, non Jews uh, are able to turn from non religious to religious much easier than uh, Jews. And that we have been called by God a stiff necked people because if we go in one direction, we don't easily change. So when uh, the Protestants and Christians are uh, going to reach a 50% benchmark, we're going to be able to get to 7%. But I want to cater to those 7%. There is a heightened interest. There's a heightened interest in religiosity. A lot of people that have never uh, been interested in uh, Jewish identity, Jewish education are now interested. So those are the three main groups that uh, I wanted to cater to that in wake of the COVID virus have simply begun. Together with that, using online education has become very fashionable. And uh, I saw in the last few months at YTA and in my evening schools that it just simply works. And uh, it actually worked better than having the brick and mortar schools because uh, at least the kids in my school, they, they're like phone, phone crazy. And like, um, once I appear in their phone, they say, oh, the rabbi really exists. He's in my phone. He's like a serious thing to deal with. And then all of a sudden they're willing to relate to me as opposed to someone who's just bothering them and not allowing them to use their phones during my class. I, I was wondering, you talked about the price of education. Um, my friend and I last week, we were trying to calculate and we figured that going to college, we could have afforded one-on-one -on -one sessions with all of our professors uh, for the amount of hours they taught us for less than we were actually paying uh, the university, you know, these tenured doctorates and this and that. So like, why is education so expensive? And are you addressing that at all with the Lone Star Academy? Well, um, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm addressing it with the King Solomon uh, Academy and that my goal is to offer affordable education <laughs> to the kids. Uh, first of all, the Lone Star Academy is free. It's a charter school. The state of Texas is funding the bill. Anybody who wants to go can go, and it's simply free. Um, I don't necessarily recommend going unless you uh, happen to want to learn language in Plano, but that's a different, that's a different thing. But going back to, uh, the King Solomon Academy. The King Solomon Academy, it has online teachers. I have uh, really a very good high level faculty. I have people that are internationally renowned speakers, but because it's Zoom, they're willing to teach. They don't have to leave their house. It's late at night here in Israel when it's 3.30 to 4.30 Eastern Standard Time in New York. And uh, I was able to put together a very good staff uh, and uh, the cost for a year is $1,000. So if you're going to compare that uh, with 20 or 30, yeah, it's definitely a completely different ballgame. And families that just can't afford that kind of money, $1,000, it comes to like $100 a month. I don't know, it's not a lot more than their Netflix bill. And uh, they can um, simply uh, get live online Jewish education for that price. 
you speak to us maybe, um, you know, what are, you said, you said it's about an hour a day. So, so what content is going to be in that hour? How, how long are classes? Um, so and how does that compare? Also, it's a kind of uh, a, a little entrepreneurial. And uh, what I did is I invented uh, new ideas. And I figured that today the attention span of the kids is uh, five, 10 minutes. And that if you can't say it in five, 10 minutes, anyway, the kids, you're going to lose them. So uh, the first class is a 10 minute class and um, it will, uh, it'll intermittently change, but it's going to be uh, a class in either Jewish history or in something which is, you can say, you know, 10 minutes of Jewish history and say, do you know that on Tisha B'Av, five bad things happened? At 10 minutes, you give two minutes for each one. You have a very good presentation. People understand that. That's it. That's what you get in 10 minutes, like a YouTube video or a TED talk. Then the next class is a long class and it's 15 minutes. And uh, there's a 15 minute class that will actually be in Kabbalah. Now I'm calling it Kabbalah. And even though like I'm a pretty mainstream, uh, just regular uh, Lithuanian rabbi, I'm calling it Kabbalah because for some reason people want to learn Kabbalah. So I think that if I uh, take everything that is taught in the Jewish culture uh, under Musar, Hasidut, ethics, everything, and we'll just call it Kabbalah, that um, it'll sound like really interesting and kids will want to learn it. And do you I, have Musar and ethics class also? Uh, well, we do, we do have a separate ethics class. And uh, there's just so many ethics that you have to learn that uh, I'm not worried about uh, having to teach the same thing twice. There is ethics, there is a Jewish ethics, uh, and that will also be a separate class. Uh, from, uh, there's a five minute recess until four o'clock from, uh, and it's a very important part because one of the 48 ways of uh, learning is is having social interaction. And I see those five minutes of having a, uh, all of the students together uh, in the class uh, online, seeing each other, being able to chat with uh, a responsible adult there as a very healthy part of the program. Uh, next at four o'clock is a long, long class from four to 4.20. And uh, that will be in, in the Chomish and in Tanakh. Uh, one of our teachers, uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, is a well-known uh, Flemish teacher who has uh, agreed to be part of our staff. He's going to be giving some of those classes. And then at the end, we have a, another uh, short 10-minute class to end, the, to end it off. And that 10-minute class, I think, is only going to be about seven minutes. And that we're going to have the three minutes at the end by the principal, who is... Uh, uh, Jake uh, Rosenbaum, and he's going to uh, sum up everything in the hour in those last three minutes and give a kind of uh, form and content to everything else. So that's how in like one hour, I'm going to try to condense three hours. I'm convinced that the kids will learn a lot more in that one hour than they would in three hours of a Sunday school. What would you say to maybe someone who sees this a bit more cynically and says, well, the kids are going to come teach class a couple minutes late. And because it's only a few minutes, each class is going to cut, you know, each class into like, you know, two thirds of a class. I mean, it's going to be like seven minutes of a class. And in terms of 
your point about recess, how do you know the kids are going to talk to each other during recess and not just, you know, go on their phone? Well, first of all, uh, we don't know anything. And that, that's part of uh, entrepreneurship is that you uh, try to estimate and make like a, a, best, uh, a best appraisal of what you think is going to happen. And um, there's a lot of stabbing in the dark also when you're going to do something that's never been done. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, this schedule of trying to put uh, four different classes in uh, different, different uh, amounts of time into one hour slot has never been done. And that uh, to have a school that's predicated on TED Talks, I don't know if it's been done. And uh, how it's going to work will be a lot smarter one year from now. It seems to me that it's going to be more effective based on how many hits TED Talks have and how many hits these long-winded rabbis get. And that uh, if you go onto the internet, you can see that some of them have 10 hits. Some of them don't even have that many. And usually a TED Talk will go into, it'll have that little K next to it. And you'll see that uh, thousands of people are willing to listen if it's concise. Uh, the next part, when you, when you talked about uh, recess, I don't know uh, how recess is going to be. I assume that people are social animals. And because of COVID, they're, they're even more interested, especially if they're from a small town and they've never seen a Jew before. They'll be really happy to communicate with other people uh, their same age who are going through a, uh, a similar educational process. And I, I'm actually very, very hopeful. I'm worried about the other, the other side of things. How do I convince them after five minutes to stop and come back to class? Yeah, that, that, that is a good point as well. Um, can you also tell us maybe a little bit about your other you know, current project, uh, you know, the Lone Star Academy, maybe how that started? Um, are you planning on doing anything with it going forward? Well, the Lone Star Academy was an interesting uh, plan. When, uh, when I created it, uh, my basic goal was to get Jews that are not affiliated with Judaism more affiliated. And that um, most of the Jews in the United States are not affiliated. For instance, in uh, Dallas, Texas, where I made the school, 80% uh, of the Jewish people had nothing to do with the Jewish community. Now, when I say Jewish community, I'm not talking about the Orthodox Jewish community. I mean, they wouldn't even go into a store once a year to buy Judaica. Nothing means nothing. And that means they're outside of the Orthodox community, outside of the conservative community, outside of the Reform, Reconstructionist, the Kabbalah Center. They have nothing to do with anything. And they are totally unaffiliated. Unaffiliated means unaffiliated. Now, in, in Plano, Texas, or in Dallas, Texas, there are 80,000 Jews. 20,000 of those Jews are affiliated in some way, either in the Orthodox, Conservative, or Reform communities. That means 60,000, there's nothing out, there's nothing there for them. Now, there is a little bit of Chabad and a tiny bit of NCSY for these other Jews. They are two movements that actually have an outreach and they do cater to these other Jews. And that 
out of these uh, 60,000 Jews in Texas, you have to take off uh, 100, maybe 200 that Chabad is reaching and another one or 200 that NCSY is reaching. And that um, they're doing great things, but there's definitely room to figure out how to reach these others. So uh, I thought uh, a little cynically that if I find a way to get the non-Jews interested in Jewish education, the Jews will follow right away. And that uh, my uh, strategy was to make something that is very attractive to just non-Jewish non Texans. And uh, the Hebrew language is really uh, of interest to a lot of evangelists, a lot of people in Texas. They, they just want to learn Hebrew. And um, I, I remember uh, when I learned how to make the school, I went to Florida to see the Ben Gamla charter schools. And there I saw the, someone who didn't really look that Jewish. And I asked him, I said, well, how can you send your kids to this school? And he said, oh, I love it. My kids come back with these little itsy bitsy Hebrew words and they say them in, this, in, in the home. And that, that just makes, that makes our day. So there are a lot of people out there that really want to learn Hebrew. So I figure, all right, we'll offer Hebrew, Zionism, Israeli culture, and we'll have Hebrew immersion. And uh, as a result, more and more non-Jews will be interested in learning Hebrew. And the Jews who are going to follow the non-Jews will follow them into the school. And then we'll be able to attract Jews. In Plano, uh, a very large part of the non, uh, of just the community, if you just take uh, um, people who are in a supermarket in Plano, 40% of them are Jewish. I don't know if all 40% really know they're Jewish or act Jewish in any way, but they are Jewish, which means that if you're gonna open up a school in Plano, that means you're going to automatically educate 40% uh, of the population of that school. They're probably going to be Jewish. And today it's really hard. It's also uh, something which is uh, not accepted in America to do a survey and know how many, what percentage is Jewish. So we don't really know what percentage is Jewish. It could be that they themselves don't even know what percentage of them are Jewish. But the basic assumption is that there are probably 50% uh, Jewish people in the schools, which is a similar percentage that kind of works out that way in a lot of the schools, Hebrew charter schools that are made throughout the United States, that it kind of ends up as 50% uh, Jewish. So uh, the idea was that this would be a way to get unaffiliated people a little more affiliated. That, that was the underlying idea. Would you say it was successful? Well, I've learned a new word. And I, you know, I used to like, uh, say that uh, I have failed. And I would just say uh, that it was miserable failure. And then someone say, don't say that. I have a new way of saying miserable failure. I say, yeah, what do you say? Say, Call it a partial success. It was partially successful. I say, okay, okay, I'll go with that. It was partially successful. The truth is that it's not only a matter of semantics and that everything you do is uh, actually partially successful. Uh, the truth is that it's so far away from my vision 
And uh, I had a vision of having the seventh and eighth graders uh, have bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah trips to Israel and to be very uh, closely associated with modern Israel culture. And um, I don't see that as happening. And as a result, uh, I personally, um, I, I still remain the dean, but I'm not uh, involved in any way in the school. And uh, I've kind of uh, changed, changed pace. The, the charter school was actually the first stage. It was a pilot for um, the next thousand schools. I was going to make a thousand schools across all of the United States. And that once this worked, I would use that as a pivot to make the next school and the next school and the next school until I went across all the United States and got all of the unaffiliated Jews uh, affiliated again. Uh, maybe that's another point that entrepreneurs would be very interested in. And that is that um, many times I've made a pilot and that usually the way to make something to, is, is to test it with a pilot. And then you see that if the pilot works, then you, you, you do the real thing or you just increase it more and more until you've got it, especially in uh, the Ministry of Education that's always done. You start with a pilot. Now, I've done many things, many things have worked, many things have not worked. I'll give you an example of a yeshiva that I made, and it didn't work. I mean, again, it was partially successful. And we, I made a yeshiva, which was a Jeep yeshiva. And instead of having classrooms, we studied in Jeeps outdoors, and we would set up a classroom outside. It was for ADHD kids. And, um, we would just be out and on the move and study outdoors. And it was really a lot of fun. I really loved it. I had it for about four years. Now, every year I realized that I needed more and more structure. And that the first year everything was outdoors. And uh, the next year I decided that I should really have math and uh, serious Gemara indoors. And then the next year I decided that I should have more subjects uh, until I got to the point where only field trips were outdoors, which was not very distant from a regular school. And then um, this uh, school kind of morphed into like a special needs school that uh, you don't know in the beginning. Now, what happens when uh, you, you make the school, oh, what was the point that I was trying to make? I was trying to make a point out of this. Um, Oh, wow. And I hope it's not lost for, from the world forever. I was going to say an important point regarding entrepreneurs. Did I, I didn't say what the point was, did I? I, I don't no, think no. so. You, you mentioned about something, an opportunity in America. I was going to say an important point for entrepreneurs. Well, it's gone. I guess you're not going to get it. Maybe that's schools. the point. There was one school. Yeah, it was supposed, it's supposed to be a thousand schools. Something about. Oh, yeah. now I remember what it was. it was. I was talking about pilots. Let me go back. I got it now. Thank you. Oh. I was talking about pilots. That's another point for entrepreneurs. Try to do things when you're still young and you can remember uh, the beginning of the sentence by the time you get to the end of your sentence. And that uh, when you get older, you, you have to at least uh, have a CEO who's 30 years younger so that he can really uh, do things and remember what you did yesterday in order to figure out what you do tomorrow. Let's go back. So when you're going to do uh, an, uh, you're going to do a pilot, so there's two possibilities. Either it works or it doesn't work. If it works, then you go ahead. Everything is fun. 
But what happens when it doesn't work, you analyze why it doesn't work. Now, every time we did something, I analyzed why it didn't work. The, the yeshiva, it didn't work. Like the, the, the learning outdoors didn't work. Every time I could have uh, singled out a logistic reason why it didn't work. I said, well, you know, we just needed a logistic team to set up the classroom ahead of time. And then the kids wouldn't have gotten distracted by setting up the classroom. And then it would have worked if we just came into a set up classroom. And then every time you think of different ways to overcome what happened wrong in the pilot, and then you can, you can fix it. I never went in that direction. Anytime I made a pilot and the pilot didn't work, I came to the conclusion it doesn't work. And that there are always technical reasons. And there are always things that you say, well, let's try this and try that and try that. And sometimes entrepreneurs will just fall in love with their pilot and their idea to such an extent that they're going to spend the rest of their lives trying to correct the pilot with all kinds of technical things without coming to grips with the real truth. It doesn't work. And that it's just not going to fly. Newton is stronger than your paper airplane. And it's just going to stay on the ground forever. Just come to grips with that. So it could be that I'm a little extreme when it comes to that. But anytime I make a pilot and the pilot doesn't work, even though I identify why it didn't work. And I say, well, there's this and this, and this work. It's all technical. There's nothing essential. My idea of getting unaffiliated Jews affiliated, I think still works. And that uh, theoretically, it's still a good idea. But I think that one of the main components was that unaffiliated Jews want to remain unaffiliated. And that's like an underlying uh, reason why all of these technical problems occur. And that if you just address the technical problems without addressing the truth, that unaffiliated Jews don't want to become affiliated. And whatever you do, it's just not going to work. And you just have to come to the grips with the fact that um, it was a stupid idea to begin with. And what everybody told you, they were right. And um, whenever you make a pilot and it doesn't work, my suggestion is grow up, ditch the program, try again from scratch. Rabbi, have you ever watched uh, Shark Tank? You know, they have this TV um, show. I'll tell you, <laughs> I've never actually watched it. I think I might have watched like three minutes because we did a Shark Tank in school. And that was a oh. program that we did. And I was one of the Shark Tank people that uh, I had to like think. And there was this great, I really loved it. There was this guy who invented uh, a humidifier thermos. And that uh, you start with an empty thermos and it just becomes full of water all the time. I really like that idea. And anyway, before I became like this um, uh, shark in the shark tank, I think I spent like five minutes looking at it and seeing what it was that they did. I personally, I don't know, for, I don't know if it was only those five minutes, from the five minutes that I looked at it, they were really nasty. And they were just like saying, do you want our money? Do you think it's a good idea? Yes, no. And like, they said, you know, grow up and then maybe it'll be a better idea. And because of that, I, I didn't really like their attitude. And I'm much more um, uh, accepting. And that when people have stupid ideas, I actually say, all right, go for it. And you never know ahead of time which stupid idea is going to change the world. You know, they actually uh, killed Galileo a little before his time. If they would have let him play out, they would have realized, oh, there's something to what he says. Right. But they're also, like, like what you're saying, there is a point where you have to just accept that it just doesn't work. Yeah, that, that's, a balance. I, you know what, I think that like, 
that's part of what I said before, that you have to be willing to fail and that you have to be willing to fail in a lot of different ways. The, the simple way of failing is that it just doesn't work and that, oh, I, I didn't realize that I needed electricity and that it's just never gonna work. That's, that's one way. But there's another way of failing, which is a slow failing and that you just have to say, all right, I'm cutting losses, that's it. I've gone down the wrong road, I'm stopping, I'm turning around, I'm gonna start from scratch. And that that is a lot more difficult. And in order to be a good entrepreneur, you're gonna to have to know how to pull the plug at the right time. Okay. Do you have any um, other points you wanted to share maybe about the King Solomon Academy, maybe how to contact you if people are interested? Uh, yeah, you can just call me on my phone. Uh, Wait, let me turn it on. As soon as I say the number, I'm going to be inundated. So uh, it's 972. And don't get confused with Israel 972. It's a number that I got for the Lone Star Academy. Dallas is 972. So it's uh, 972 in the United States, 330-6463. Again, 972-330-6463. And uh, visit the website. And uh, there's a website up, it's kingsol.org. Again, king, K-I-N-G-S-O-L dot O-R-G. And the website is up. Anybody who wants to send us a mail at office at King Sol, we'll be happy to uh, answer any inquiries. At, at any point you just want to share that, that we didn't get to mention about the, uh, about the King Solomon Academy? You know, asking uh, a dean of an academy to speak about his academy is like asking a grandmother, is there anything you want to tell us about your grandchildren that you haven't told us yet? And that it's the kind of thing that uh, would just go on forever. Uh, if I have to put it all in a concise kind of a nutshell, I would for say For example, that, like you would do for the classes. <laughs> yeah, like a, a TED talk, yeah. Uh, then uh, I would say that... Uh, I'm really, first of all, very optimistic. It's something, it's like a newborn baby and like the whole world is ahead and everybody is just so happy that this baby is going to be uh, the next Mashiach, Vilnagon, Rambam, history professor, uh, the dreams of everything that you wanted. So like, this is like the greatest time uh, where I'm just so optimistic and full of hope that uh, the school is going to reach fruition. Uh, making a school is very much like making challenge. Like, you know what ingredients you put in? You have no idea what comes out and uh, how pragmatic existence affects the impact your ideology. And that like a when you have a school that actually works, it's very different than anything that you did. Again, I, I have a proof from God that that's okay because God created the world in six days. And on the fourth day, uh, God created the, I'm sorry, third day. He created trees, fourth day. When did he create trees? He created trees and he said, trees, listen, um, third day, right? He said, uh, I'm creating trees. That includes trees, right? Yeah. It's, that's it, trees, third day. God said, listen, uh, I'm creating trees and I want all of the trees to have bark and fruit, which are the same taste. And when it came to the nitty gritty of existence, the tree said, no, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna have bark, which is bark, and fruit, which is fruit. Now, what does it say at the end of the third day? Hamayim Kitov, it says God saw everything that he did, and it's good. And that even though 
the, 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 there was a sin and the ground didn't listen exactly and it came out very different than God's original plan, you see nevertheless that that's considered good. The same is true with any school that you make, even though uh, it comes out very different than your original design and desire, it's good. And that uh, there's something very, very good about it. So at this point, I'm very optimistic that it will actually impact in a positive way Jewish education and that there are gonna be a lot of people out there that wouldn't have an opportunity of receiving a Jewish education and it's going to be facilitated. Uh, uh, I hope uh, we hope to hear back soon about you know about some big things. Maybe we'll try to update our listeners. Uh, you know, after in two weeks when school starts, how many uh, how many people uh, signed up? So thank you very much for joining us. I, I learned a lot about entrepreneurship and a lot of your very interesting ventures. <laughs> uh, but, but thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. Oh, well, it was always a pleasure being able to schmooze about what I enjoy most. Thanks a lot. Very good. All the best. Thank you for listening. A little about us. I'm your co-host, Darren May, and I'm a marketing professional. I'm the head of marketing automation at National Positions, one of the top digital marketing agencies in the world. I love anything to do with marketing and business. And I'm your co-host, Joseph Miller. I'm an avid follower of the financial markets, and I have a degree in finance. I'm also the founder and CEO of International E-Commerce Conglomerate Without a P Enterprise. We are unapologetically without a piece since 2018. Make sure to like and subscribe and check out our website, pureconversation.com.